The older I get, the more get off my lawn I feel. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. Anybody, anybody here this morning, can you kind of somewhat relate to that? Uh, sometimes literally I feel like that, like when someone's dog or cat is on our property, I'll get miffed, uh, not because I don't like dogs, uh, <clears throat> but because they don't have my permission to be there. And that may sound silly to you. Uh, where we live, our neighbor's property comes up to ours, and it looks like there's an easement to another property there. And we've always, you know, thought about that and was wondering, hey, if, if that's ever going to be a problem. Uh, but there actually isn't an easement there. But folks have been accessing another property via our neighbor's property lately and gave us the impression that they talked with our neighbors and made sure everything was fine and that there is an easement there. Uh, anyway, they ended up putting a no trespassing sign back in the back corner, you know, at the beginning of their property, I think. Um, and th- but then we come home one day. And that little section of property that they've been accessing their corner, you know, from, our neighbor has put up a no trespassing sign. So now we're kind of wondering, we get home and Renee and I are talking, like, who put that up there? Was it the other people or these people? Was it our neighbors? You know, what, what's going on here? And we're wondering, like, how, how this is going to go. Because uh, we, we've met both parties and even exchanged numbers with them because we're trying to be neighborly and all that kind of stuff. And it turns out that there isn't an easement there at all. We were uh, stacking some wood at our house outside, and our neighbor pulls up the driveway, and they came up and said, hey, just want to let you know that no trespassing sign isn't for you guys. And we're like, well, good. You know, we weren't really sure what, what was going on, but we, we know somebody else has been coming through, um, and now we've got to let our neighbors know if people ignore the sign. You know, so it's kind of like one of those, oh, this will be fun and kind of interesting. But I also understand why they feel that way. There are plenty of reasons why I think respecting someone else's property is important. One is I just want to treat other people the way I want to be treated, and I want you to stay off my property. You know, uh, it, that's reasonable, right? Uh, it, it, unless you have permission, and, and m- most of you would. Um, <laughs> s- slow burn on that one. That's, that's all right. Um, and I want, you know, people, I, I want to be using somebody else's possessions the way I want them to use mine, right? Uh, so I tried to think about that. One of the things that used to drive me nuts in college is that, you know, we'd hang out in the dorm room and guys would come in, but there, there were certain guys that... First of all, they didn't know where their feet were. Have you ever met somebody like that? Like you could have your book bag like kind of leaning up against your desk and there, and they would find a way to step on it. Do you know people like that that just don't pay attention to where they walk, and so they just step on anything that's there? Um, and, and that was one of the things. But the other thing that really got, uh, got me kind of miffed, I guess I'll say, uh, and not tell you how I really felt about it, is when guys would sit on my bed, and not just on my bed. If my bed's made, sit on the foot of the bed. That's, that's fine. I'm totally cool with that. But for some reason, they would think that sitting on my pillow was where their <laughs> rear end was supposed to be. And, and I'm just thinking, uh, first of all, in college, right, you don't want anybody that's in college sitting on your pillow, uh, first of all, because you're not sure when the last time they showered, um, in, in the guy's dorm, all right? And, and the other thing was, it's like, come on, man, that's where I put my head. And my pillow is not like a place for you to lounge on or to lay on, that kind of thing. I just think that's dirty. It's not a backrest for you. Now, I, I think I'm pretty well justified in my feelings on that. I mean, most of you would agree with me, right? Like, stay off my pillow kind of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's my pillow, man. You know, you don't take another man's pillow. I mean, it's just not something that's done. Or somebody else is on my property that shouldn't be. I have a reasonable expectation that they leave. And, and we're all on the same page with that, surely. However, I also recognize that my reaction to those things matter in order to have a healthy relationship with others. And so how I wanted to treat the guy that would sit on my pillow 
is not how I actually treated them. You know, I'd like smack them upside the head and tell them they're an idiot and get out of my room. You know, that's what I'd like to do. Uh, but instead, I, you know, I'd correct his poor manners by asking him not to sit there. Or if somebody's in my yard, I'll ask them how I can help them instead of brandishing the shotgun and yelling, get off my lawn. And when I get a little bit older and I get the rocking chair on the front porch, that's when I'll do that. Now ask me if I've ever crossed a no trespassing private property sign. I will neither confirm nor deny, but I suspect that you can guess the right answer. Isn't it funny how we all view ourselves as exceptions to the rule? In so many areas of life that, you know, that no one else would have a valid reason for crossing the property line, uh, but I'm a reasonable person. And I know of scenarios and situations where it would make sense for me to do so. And it belies an underlying thought process that causes us to ignore the data or the inputs that we've received in favor of our own perceived exceptional thinking. And we believe that we should be free to make ourselves the exception to the rule. Um, here, here's an example from Scripture in Matthew chapter 16. And just to kind of set the stage a little bit, Jesus has just finished telling the disciples that he is going to be killed. And Peter, one of his closest disciples, responds to this information by saying, God forbid, this will never happen to you. Not at all. There's no way this could happen to Jesus. He couldn't even conceive of a possibility in which this might be the case, and much less allow it to happen. And Jesus says this in response to Peter, Matthew 16, verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I'm not sure when the last time somebody called you Satan was, uh, but that's kind of a pretty harsh response there. I'm guessing it didn't leave you feeling all that great about yourself. And so what Jesus has to say to Peter is pretty significant here and what he's going to say to all the disciples just after this. Uh, so what causes one to become an obstacle to Jesus? This is what Jesus says Peter is. Satan means adversary. And so that's what he's calling Peter. He hey, you are my adversary. You're not just my disciple now. But the way that you're talking and speaking, claiming things are going to be, you are, you are being an obstacle in my life. And let us not separate ourselves too much from Peter here. This is a logical conclusion for someone who's following Jesus and believes that he's the son of the living God. You know, nobody wants Jesus to have to be killed on our behalf. But since we know the rest of the history in this regard, without Jesus' death, there would be no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would be no good news. Peter, however, in the moment, not that we would be any different, is so self-assured in his belief that the way that he has processed the life and teachings of Jesus, in light of his own opinion up to the point, up to that point, meant that Jesus ought not die. How else then could he build his earthly kingdom, right? And so he tells Jesus that as he's teaching him and telling Peter what is happening and the rest of the disciples, he tells them that he's wrong. And I can't help but inwardly smirk just a little bit and think, man, Peter, if only you knew then what we know now. You know, how silly you would sound in that moment. Can you imagine telling Jesus that he's wrong? God in the flesh is teaching you and saying, hey, this is how it is. This is how life is. This is what it means to follow the living God. And saying, yeah, mm, don't think you know what you're talking about here. You probably got that wrong, Jesus. But let's be honest. We've all done the same thing. We've, we've all thought of ourselves as exceptions to the rule. 
Here's what Jesus faults Peter with. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You know, we've all followed the beat of our own drum. We've all been ignorant of what Scripture teaches on some uh, facet of life. And so sometimes we've had to be corrected or sometimes we go for years without realizing that we've had the wrong perspective or worldview all along. Um, and surely we can all think of at least one or two ways in which that's been the case in our own lives. It's what ensures the divisions and falls of kingdoms, but certainly also the vision of families, for friendships, even within our inner lives and the way that we think about ourselves, uh, the way that we think about the world around us, how it impacts us and how we impact it. Um, this is where we become obstacles to ourselves and to the work of God, um, that, the work of God that God is seeking to do in and through us. The number one obstacle that Peter is unable to overcome in hearing this hard teaching from Jesus is his own sense of control. Because he just doesn't want things to be the way that he doesn't want them to be them. I know I can relate to that. This is why Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. I mean, later on, when, Jesus, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter uh, takes out a sword and attacks the people who come. He cuts off the ear of the chief priest's servant, you know, as they're coming, because Peter is unwilling to allow this thing that Jesus said is going to come to come. He can't fathom any other way, and he's willing to take matters into his own hands to prevent it. And here's what Jesus says next. Whoever wants to be my disciple, and this is Matthew 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. See, Peter believed that the narrative of Jesus' life that he controlled gave him insight to know God's will. However, Jesus counters that belief by directing Peter to deny himself in order to live within God's will. In fact, this is a distinction that challenges a belief-only relationship between humanity and God. God isn't asking us to have a conception of him in our lives. That maybe sometimes affects certain things here and there. But he's inviting us into living in a covenant with him. But in order to do so, we have to give up control. It's not all that popular of a concept, giving up control, is it? If anything, this past year has been a reminder that human beings aren't in control, that is. As much money or wisdom and knowledge and posturing we might throw at something, we don't have all the insight necessary to be self-assured about how we handle things. Yes, I'm talking about pandemics and politics. Largely because we don't have in mind the concerns of God, but mere human concerns. On the one hand, we want to control how everyone else is thinking and acting. You want to talk about masks? We could do that. Just kidding. Everybody got real nervous there. On the other hand, we don't want anyone else to control how we think and act about the same things. And it often doesn't really matter to us what information is presented because that sense of control is tied to our own sense of freedom. Jesus says to deny oneself to follow him and to lose one's life to find it in him. And this doesn't always fit in with our cultural sensibilities in regards to freedom that are ingrained in us historically. Yet freedom is how we frame our cultural worldview. These words are going to be familiar to most of us. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, that's from the Declaration of Independence. I like those words. I think they're great. And while I think you can extrapolate biblical principles to reinforce these ideas, this is the conception of God. And keep in mind that a country's overlay of Christian value does not equate it with the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. After all, the country, the 13 United States of America were declaring themselves independent of was a quote-unquote Christian nation. And we still didn't get it right right away. The self-evident truths that our nation was claimed to have been built on, namely that all men are created equal, didn't extend to all people at that time, and our society is still struggling know, to know what to make of that. But this goes back to where we place the locus of control of our lives. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Even if we get everything that we want out of life, we're able to carve out our own personal, unpoppable bubble of life, liberty, and happiness. It would feel empty without the covenant relationship with the one who defines what those terms mean in our lives. We will not find the freedom we seek within the systems of earthly kingdoms, and that's either personal or political kingdoms. Imagine dropping off a child in Walmart and saying, you're free. Can you, can you picture that? Because at first, the kid is going to be like, you don't mean that. And, you know, so they're going to hesitate a little bit. They're going to look at you. They're going to start walking away. You know, and they're going to look back at you, and they're going to kind of go around an aisle, and then they might pop back and look, look at you. But then you just stand there and just let them do whatever they want and see how that works out for you. Some kids are going to do better than others. Um, you, you've got that picture, so you're imagining you can go from there. No one believes that freedom exists without parameters. Even the anarchist doesn't want to get punched in the face. It's why humanity will always need honorable men and women in law enforcement who are willing to ensure those parameters among our brokenness. Because left to our own devices, we, we don't really typically, as a whole, use our freedom for great purposes. The question is only this, who are we going to allow to set those parameters in our life? Is it the government? Is it us? Or is it God? Depending on where you fall, the following passage from Paul uh, will sound great. Galatians 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Of course, the context in which Paul is speaking is, is not just about politics, although it certainly affects that. But he's talking about the spiritual yoke of slavery that people, people often place on themselves when they add additional human concerns onto the godly concerns that God calls us to focus on. Paul continues on further within the same chapter. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out where you will be destroyed by each other. So freedom, yes, but not to the exclusion of the moral and ethical and righteous regulation that God sets up that supersedes earthly definitions. Freedom is a paradox for us. Listen to these words from Paul from Romans 6, verses 20 to 23. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been set free from the slavery of sin to then bind ourselves to the control of God's righteousness, which leads to holiness, which leads to life. And so Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It seems to me that for the most part, people these days use their freedom to not deal with things that they don't want to deal with. No amens on that? I'm surprised. I thought maybe. If I'm not in control or things aren't the way I want them, I'm free to leave or do my own thing. But freedom isn't isn't about that type of control. It's not about a lack of control over us. It's about us giving control to the right person. And it starts with denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following Jesus, making God's will our purpose, carrying our burdens in the same way Jesus does, and walking and talking like him all the way. Because Jesus offers something even better than freedom. He offers soul-sustaining life. Our freedom is meant to help us create opportunities to serve one another humbly in love. Mere human concerns will not draw you to that conclusion, but godly concerns will. And every week at Velocity, we're reminded of what we lay down at the foot of the cross so that we can follow the way of Jesus. In the kingdom of God, our symbols of freedom are an empty cross and an empty grave. And it's here that we lay down our fear, we lay down our preferences, we put aside control, and we follow in Jesus' righteousness. And may our lives be marked by that pursuit more than any other, as we use our freedom that God gives us to serve one another humbly in love. Like we do every week at Velocity, we're going to take communion together right after I pray. Their table set. Uh, throughout the room and so whichever one's closest to you you're free to to get up as the band plays uh, some music um, and and meditate on on what uh, what God sets us free from and then what we're called to use that freedom for let's pray God we uh, we stand before you um, humbly and humbled uh, that that you would offer us brand new life even though we completely don't deserve it. God, we thank you for setting us free from the bondage of sin, and we thank you for giving us a clear path to to righteousness, to being within your will in our lives. And God, as we think about not ourselves and how we live that out, but how uh, our lives impact other people and their uh, eternal trajectory, God, we ask that you comfort us with your Holy Spirit and help us to see um, that because we're free in Christ, uh, we, we are bound to a life that uh, reflects, reflects Jesus. God, we, we praise you for this. We ask you to give us the, the strength that we need, the wisdom that we need to, uh, to live that out in our day-to-day lives. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.